You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Good morning. That's good. Brett got you good warmed up. We're glad you're here with us today. Welcome to the first Sunday, 2022. You're starting the year off well. Good job. Uh, today, we're going to kick off a series. So what I'm going to do today is just lay a foundation. That's it. Just a foundation. And so we're going to build on that foundation the next few weeks. So if this is the only time we see you, hopefully there's something in here that will be at least encouraging and challenging to you. But if you really want to get the full breadth of it, you got to keep showing up. So just in case we get some massive blizzard over the next few weeks, which can happen in Indiana. You know, we woke up this morning, there was a massive blizzard. It was like a quarter of an inch of snow. We were all surprised by it. But if there really is a real blizzard and you have to miss, go online. How many of you set New Year's resolutions? Let me see a hand, loud or proud, if you are a New Year's resolution person. All right, that was my fear. Last service is about the same. It seems like about 90% of Kingsway people somewhere along the way decided that their New Year's resolution would be no more New Year's resolutions. (laughs) If you fail to plan, then you... Plan to fail. I get it. New Year's resolutions aren't really that helpful because we make them and break them by the end of the month. But how do we, as a group of people, wrestle with what God wants for us to do? Now, we may do that here in January, but we got to do it again in February and in March and in April and May and June and on and on and on it goes. We continue to ask God, what do you want from me? What do you want from me What do you want from me? So I want you to do that over this month as we go through this series. Now, when I was becoming a pastor roughly 20 years ago, we'll leave it at that, about 20 years ago, uh, when I was coming through Bible college, there was a thing going on called the church growth movement. The church growth movement was uh, how do we grow our churches bigger and better? And one of the theories at that time was the way you do that is you offer a lot of programs, lots and lots and lots of programs. For those of you who are under the age of 40, You will not probably remember this, but there was a day and age where McDonald's had a very small menu, a handful or so of items. I don't know the exact number. It was like a big Mac filet of fish, a quarter pound of French fry, icy Coke, thick shake, sundae, and apple pie. And that was like the whole menu right there, right? You're welcome. So that was like it. But then when I was, say, a young boy, teenagers in that range, they started to expand and double and triple and quadruple their menu and it got bigger. Like, how many things can we do with a burger? Let's see. And so as they did that, what happened was many churches went, ooh, we can do the same thing. We'll add men's ministries, women's ministries, kids' ministries, midweek this and late night that. And what happened was the church became the center of everybody's lives and everybody's calendars. And then what happened was there was a shift in the American church. And many people left smaller churches or country churches that started coming to bigger churches. Those who offered more programming and better programming got bigger. Kingsway would have been one of those. We got bigger because people started coming from other churches. What we've seen in America now over the last 50 years is the overall number of Christians in America has not grown, but the overall population of America has grown significantly. So the overall number of Christians in America has actually decreased rather than increased. And yet we've seen these massive churches popping up all across the United States, but we've also seen thousands and thousands of churches closing their doors every year in the the United States. Now there's a way more to say about this subject. I'm bringing it up because when I was in Bible college, they were talking about how to grow your church. 
And one of the things they would tell us is, you need a logo, you need a slogan, you need a catchphrase, a thing that can identify you. Everybody will know this is what you're about. And the reason we do that is because every business in America does that, right? You are so good, you just know some of these instinctively. Now, you may not know this one if you are, say, over the age of 30, but can anybody identify this slogan? Make every second count. On three, if you know the company, say it. Ready? One, two, three. I thought so. We need to get younger as a church, all right? This is TikTok. Oh, that's that thing where my kids learn the funky dance thing. Yeah, yeah, I'm all, yeah, right? That thing, yeah. Okay, how about this one? You're in good hands with? Very good, all right. So we're finally getting to our age range here. All right, how about eat more chicken? Now, if I'd have spelled it like this, I, that would have been cheating, right? Like, you knew that one. All right. How about this? The few, the proud. The Marines. The Marines. Hoorah. Yeah, right? The Marines. How about this one? Die again today. That's a good one. Let's sign up for that company. That's this one, though. Somebody last service yelled out, Kingsway. It's like, yeah. Actually, did you know that's Jesus' slogan? It's not very catchy, is it? I mean, you think about it, like all these other companies, their brands, their slogans, they're really fun and attractive. Make every second count. Don't you want to capture every minute? Jesus says, yeah, why don't you go ahead and die? Today, we'll start over tomorrow, and then you can die then, and then we'll wake up the next day, and it'll get better. You'll die again. This will be great. He actually says it this way, Luke 9, 23. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. Now, the reason I wanted to start the new year with this message is because I want to make sure nobody was here for next Sunday and we would solve all of our problems. There'd be no church left. No, it's because every time Jesus goes around and a crowd starts to get bigger and bigger and bigger around him, do you know what he does? He says increasingly more offensive things. Not offensive in the way that we think of offensive. Offensive like this. Like at one point in John chapter 6, verse 66, what he said was so offensive that it says a number of his disciples, not the 12, Jesus has around 100 disciples following him around at any time. And a number of those disciples leave him. Why did they leave? Well, because in John chapter 6, he's comparing himself to the manna that God fed the Israelites with in the story of Exodus. We'll actually get to that next month. And he starts to talk about it. And he says, if anybody wants to come after me, they're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. And then he stood there as if that's a normal thing to say. And he just patiently waited. And people just started getting up and going, I was all with you, Jesus, when you were making the blind see and the deaf hear and the lame walk. I was with you when you were bringing Lazarus back from the dead. When we thought you were going to overthrow the Roman government, I was with you. But now you're talking about eating people and drinking their blood? How weird are you? Now, if you don't have the context, maybe you're going, that is weird. Help me out here. What we just did was eat his body, drink his blood about 10 minutes ago when we took communion. That was what we were celebrating because it pointed to something else. It pointed to a deeper need. It pointed to a bigger issue. It pointed to the fact that Jesus was going to die and raise again. And anybody who would want to come after him, there would be no other name under heaven, no other religion, 
No other God, no other activity whereby you could become saved except for to follow in his footsteps. You were going to have to completely devour him, completely take him in. You were, in his words, going to have to take up your cross and follow him. But that is such a weird thing to say. I mean, Kyle Eidelman, I read his book, most of his book anyway, called Not a Fan. It's so good. And he says this, it seems like there were other options that Jesus could have gone with. (laughs) Why not a dove? I mean, it represents peace. Why? What about a shepherd's staff? It's a symbol of protection. Or a rainbow. It represents hope and promise. Why choose two bloody beams nailed together? If you want to attract customers, an image of perhaps the most brutal means of execution ever devised isn't a great place to start. We've tried to make the most of it. We turned it into ornaments and pieces of jewelry. But to those who were hearing these words of Jesus in Luke 9, the invitation to take up a cross would have been both offensive and repulsive. In fact, he goes on and makes this fantastic point. Roman soldiers had many ways to kill a person. Some of them were very fast and cheap. They could use a sword. In fact, that actually happened to some of the apostles later on. They could cut your head off. (laughs) They could give you hemlock and poison you and end it like that. They could lay siege to your city and starve you out. There's a lot of things they could do, but crucifixion was expensive and slow. And there's a reason. It was supposed to be humiliating. It was supposed to cause pain and suffering. So why in the world would Jesus look at a cross and say, you want to follow me? Take that up every single day. I attended a huge church in Colorado once. I lived out there for 10 years, for those of you who don't know. And uh, on one of my trips back, uh, when I was already here, I was trying intentionally not to go back to my church to cause disruption, like I was coming back after I'd left and, you know, making people, why did you leave us, that kind of thing. So I went and visited another local church. And it was a church that at one point was like the third fastest growing church in the United States for five years running. And I went and they had just had like a massive Easter gathering, like thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of people were showing up at their church over all these services. And when I visited, the pastor got up and he talked about this very concept. He said, you know, we just had too many of you last week. We can't handle all of you. So I'm going to cut about a third of you out and just make sure we never see you again. Then he laughed and said, I'm just joking. But that's the truth. If I wanted to attract you to Jesus, I would not talk about this. If I wanted to draw you in with this really cool looking Jesus, I would totally avoid the cross where Jesus was stripped naked and crucified to look powerless and weak. They would beat people who were crucified to within an inch of their life and then hang them. And if somebody were left on a cross, a lot of times it could take days for them to die. Why in the world would Jesus pick this as the marker for faith? And the answer actually comes in verse 24 when Jesus says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will save it. Just think about that for a second. What if the thing that you were actually aiming your life at didn't get you where you wanted to go? What if you could become the best in your field, own the biggest of your company, make the most of the kind of money you make, What if it didn't get you where you wanted to go? What if actually finding your life here would actually mean losing something bigger 
That's the point he makes here. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? There's a part of you that is deeper and bigger than the things you own, the things you experience, the person that you marry, the cars that you drive, the clothes that you wear. There's something bigger and more important going on in this world than those things. I want to be very careful. I used this illustration last service. I just want to be careful because I don't know these two men at all. I won't even say their names, but two of the wealthiest men in the world, maybe even the two wealthiest men in the world, they are both desperately trying to figure out how to get off this planet. They are desperately trying to figure out how to get into space because they have literally all the money in the world. They literally could buy whatever they want, whatever they want. There's nothing that they can't afford. So why are they trying so hard? Because they have to make a name for themselves. Why are they trying to make a name for themselves? Because they found There's nothing in this world that could satisfy. So the irony of what Jesus is saying is you're going to try your whole life to find something that satisfies, but you're never going to find it. And when you finally come to that place, would you be willing to trade your life for something bigger and better? Something that doesn't last a moment or a week or a paycheck? Something that doesn't last till next Christmas when you get your new toy? What if you could trade it for something that will last for eternity? See, when Jesus says to die, to take up your cross daily, he's actually making you a good deal. He's saying, if you will give me each of the days of this life, I will give you all of the days of eternity you choose. It's a phenomenal investment plan, but you have to see the big picture or it's simply not worth it. And the irony is, what Jesus says is, I'm actually offering you the life you're looking for right now, not then, but the thing is, what you're looking for now may not be what you thought that it was. And the real root of what Jesus is trying to get to is that he expects change from his followers. Following Jesus means real change. Real change. And this is where it gets hard. God has already been moving and stirring something in me. And I've been praying about this series and thinking about our church. What does God want to do in 2022? And then I went and read Kyle Eidemann's Not a Fan, highly recommend it. And it further convicted me. Many times I was moved emotionally reading the book, just thinking about this. What does Jesus want from me? I just came up with some categories. These may not be perfect for you. This is where you've got to wrestle with God. I, I can't tell you exactly what he wants. But I do know this, taking up your cross daily means an entire orientation of your perspective towards your work. We talked about this some in August, but what that means is you don't just have a job to make a paycheck to feed your family to put a roof over your heads. You have a job that is your ministry. And what if you were to see yourself as the hired pastor for your workplace? How would that change the way you'd work? How would that change the way you'd encourage others around you or work harder, perhaps show up earlier, stay late? How would that change the way you see your paycheck or your frustration with your boss or the conflict you're dealing with or the person whose marriage is falling apart and you need to ask them to lunch, but you really don't want to because they irritate you? How would it change your view of things? I have a friend who moved away from Kingsway and I'll get to why, it's actually a good thing. A number of years ago, he went here and we were friends and he came to me and if he, he's happy to be watching online. I'm not going to say your name, but you know who you are. Hi, and we love you, miss you. 
But he came to me, he was like, I've got this job opportunity. And he was telling me all about it. And he said, you know, help me understand, help me discern, is this God's will? And when he was telling me about the job opportunity, I could just sense in him that there was a drive in him that I didn't think was healthy. I didn't think it was from God. It felt more like a drive for more. I got to have more. I want to do more. I want to make a name. I want to, I want a bigger and better kind of perspective. And I told him, look, I'm not God. I can't tell you what God is doing, but I'm hearing this in you. And I'm not sure that's coming from a good place. Fast forward. And after a couple things happened, God led him and did some difficult things in his life and in his family's life. Another opportunity came up and he came to me again and said, okay, I've got another opportunity before me and I'm, I'm not sure I trust myself. Can you help me discern this? Again, I'm not God. I don't know what God wants to do exactly. I could be one voice. You should talk to others, but I'm not hearing the same thing in you that I was hearing a few years ago. There's something different in you this time. Now, I'm thinking God has freed you up that should you get this opportunity, go for it. And he did, and his family moved. And I missed them, crazy missed them, good friends, loved them. But there was a difference because he was trying to die to himself so that he could be alive with Christ. And instead of chasing bigger and better, he was trying to be obedient and faithful. And there is a massive difference for us. In the book, Kyle Adelman tells a story about a guy who comes to him. He, he went to speak. Uh, Kyle's church is in Kentucky, if you know, Southeast Christian Church, Louisville, Kentucky. And Kyle got asked to speak at a thing in California. When he was out there, he spoke to a man who asked him to speak to his daughter's fiance. So if you could follow that. His soon-to-be son-in-law. And he was an atheist. And he, thought, and he joked in the book, you know, a pastor and an atheist go to breakfast. And it sounds like the beginning of a joke. But he called the guy. He asked him to breakfast. And the guy said, yes. And he said, we hit it off great. After listening to a story, he told me all about his life. We met for a couple hours before Kyle had to fly out. By the end of their breakfast meeting, he literally led the, the guy to Jesus. And he accepted Jesus to their breakfast. It was such a cool story. Yeah, you can praise God for that, right? Isn't that awesome? Except fast forward now, he didn't really have contact with this guy. He came back to Kentucky doing his thing. And fast forward, what happened is at some point, he got in touch with the guy again. How's it going? Well, I've been married now. I think it was nine months or so. And my father-in-law is mad at me. He keeps trying to tell me I could buy a bigger, better house for his daughter if I would stop tithing to the church. But I'm convicted that God said I should do this. And he keeps telling me, you know, I could work on Sundays and be more productive in my job. I don't have to go to church every single Sunday, you know. And he said, the irony of this dad who wanted him to know Jesus is he wanted him to know a Jesus that didn't actually require a radical change. Jesus didn't come to play games. He didn't come to build a big team. He came to change lives. One life at a time, one death at a time, one surrender at a time. And the first Christians, they actually took Jesus literally. Literally. The book of Acts follows the book of Luke. Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. Both of them to a gentleman named Theophilus. You can find that if you read Luke chapter 1 and Acts chapter 1. And he was paid to write these books. And he went and studied the history of what happened in Jesus' life and ministry and then the history of the church. He actually followed Peter around and Paul around and wrote about their stories. So the book of Acts is the beginning of the church. And Acts, you know, it's not A-X-E because most of the people die. It's A-C-T-S because it stands for really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
And in Acts chapter one, Jesus tells the disciples, I want you to go into Jerusalem and wait. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit's gonna come and fill you up. When the Holy Spirit comes, you'll be filled with power. So they do and they wait. And then the Holy Spirit comes on them and they're filled with power. And then right after that is Pentecost, which is a big Jewish holiday. And on Pentecost, the disciples stand up, they start speaking and everybody starts listening and 3,000 people give their lives to Jesus Christ and are baptized that very day. And then at the end of that, in Acts chapter two, we read this in verse 24. They, now this is the early church. There's 3,000, over 3,000 probably of them because you've got a hundred or a couple hundred perhaps other disciples who've gathered it already at that point. It's a little over 3,000. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. Now, first of all, the apostles' teaching. There was no Bible yet at that point. There's an Old Testament text. Some local synagogues would have the scrolls. Nobody had a Bible in their hand and definitely nobody had it on a space tablet. So nobody had those yet. So where did they get the apostles' teaching? You know where? In the gathering. In fact, what they would do is they would gather in the local temple, the Jewish temple. They would gather there in the synagogue or the temple, depending on where they were located, and they would gather all together, and then they would go out into people's homes and do meals and actually interact together and eat together and be together, actually be a church together. And so they would gather together and the apostles would teach them and teach them and teach them. And it says into fellowship. And it's such a weird churchy word. Like if you've been to the church for any length of time, you've heard the word fellowship. Then if you go outside the church, you never hear the word fellowship anywhere. It's because this is actually a Greek word. It means they gathered together and shared time with each other. So there's the public big gathering and then there's the smaller gatherings in people's homes. And that's why it says, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Now, I put parentheses. This isn't in your Greek. This was agape feasts. And the very early church would gather together and they would share meals together. They would literally eat what is called love feasts. That's what the word agape means. Love feasts together and they would take communion. The breaking of bread is not just the food, it's the communion portion. So when they gather together on the first day of the week, they'd have these big meals. Then they would all take communion together. Why did they do that? It's because they wanted to remember this, the body and the blood. Remember what Jesus said. Anybody who wants to come after me will have to eat my body and drink my blood. It was a remembering of the cross every single week so that it would always stay in front of them, that they were saved by grace through faith, through what Jesus did. But not only that, but they needed to die again today. And everyone was filled with awe, the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. If you go into chapter three, what happens next in chapter three is uh, Peter and John are on their way to gather at the temple to pray. And they meet a man on the way and he is a lame man, he is injured. And he asks for alms, he asks for money. And they say, we don't have any of that but we'll give you what we do have. And so they heal him and he gets up and he starts leaping and dancing and walking and praising God. And they all go to the service together. And all of a sudden, the Jewish religious leaders who crucified Jesus not that long ago, they're jealous because their ministry is bigger than their ministry. And so they pull Peter John aside and they threaten them like, stop doing this, stop it. You stop talking about that name. And they won't say Jesus, they won't say it. I think that's fascinating. Have you ever noticed how much Jesus divides people today? You can talk about politics with somebody who completely disagrees with you and talk about it. You can talk about the intimacy of your bedroom and you can talk about it. But if you bring up the name Jesus, have you ever noticed how it just puts people on edge? And I don't know why 
except for there's something about that name, right? It's intended to be a deciding factor in our lives. Well, as the story would progress, many of these disciples start to follow Jesus and they actually take Jesus literally. And I don't know if you know this or not, it doesn't go well for them. In fact, later on uh, in the book, not a fan, Kai Eidelman says this. <clears throat> the history and church tradition tell us that many of those who followed Jesus when he was here on earth ended up on the visa, not visa, Via Dolorosa. Now, uh, if you don't know what the Via Dolorosa is, this is uh, the, the Latin phrase. It is, refers to the road that Jesus had to walk where he carried his own cross up to the place where he was crucified. And it's called the Via Dolorosa. You can actually walk the road today. And throughout the book, Kyle uses this idea, the Via Dolorosa, as the image of what a Christian today does when they walk with Jesus Christ in this way. So let's come back and read that. That'll make a little more sense now. History and church tradition tell us that many of those who followed Jesus when he was here on earth ended up on the Via Dolorosa. According to tradition, Matthew was killed by a sword in Ethiopia. Mark died in Alexandria after being dragged by horses through the streets until he was dead. Luke was hanged in Greece. Peter was crucified upside down. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India during a missionary trip. Jude, the brother of Jesus, was killed with arrows when he refused to deny his faith in Christ. And James was beheaded in Jerusalem. Sure sounds like they took up their cross, didn't they? I actually get to visit here where Thomas was. In 2012, when I went to visit our missionaries in India, we went to the city. And there's actually a spot where they believe was the actual spot where Thomas was killed. That's 2,000 years ago almost. It's crazy. And what happened on that spot was he was trying to take the gospel to the people in India, and he wasn't making progress, and he was kneeling down to pray. And while he was praying, it said that one of the locals came up with a spear behind him and killed him while he was praying. And there's a basilica, a large, like, religious building there, and you could actually see where they say his bones are buried. I don't know how to know if it's actually his bones or not. But if there's something holy about standing in that spot and saying, this is the doubting Thomas, if you know his story. After Jesus was resurrected and Thomas looks at me, he's like, I don't know, if that's you, if that's really you, let me touch the holes. And Jesus is like, come here. I wonder what it would have been like would it have been enough for Thomas to go, yeah, I believe. And I'm willing to reorient my entire life around you. As Kyle says, a decision to follow Jesus is a decision to die to yourself. And it sounds easy, but boy, is it hard. Because dying to yourself means becoming like Christ in a world where what we are told is don't become more like Christ. I don't know exactly what you're dealing with or what God may want to do in you. I'm currently wrestling with God and saying, God, if I were to die to myself this year, what would I do that's already different? 
And God is already speaking a couple things to me, but I don't have it all worked out yet. And that's why I want you to keep showing up over the next few weeks as I just present some more thoughts and some more ideas about what God might be doing. But let me just throw some things out, food for thought. What if there was something in your heart and in your life that needed to die? And the moment I started talking about this, you knew exactly what it was. Is there a vice? Is there a habit that you know has gotten out of control and it's taking over a place that God could take in your life? And you know it. Like I'm saying it right now and it's like, that's it, that's the thing. I've got to stop filling the blank. Is there a person in your life you know you need to forgive, but you really don't want to? Because there's something comforting about knowing that they hurt you and that you're in the moral high position. And so you hold on to the hurt and the bitterness, refusing to let go. And yet here stands Jesus saying, to the degree to which you forgive others, I will forgive you. So we're not being asked to do anything that he hasn't already done first. Is there somebody that there's brokenness between you and them and you are convinced 90% of the issue is their fault and you're probably right. But 10% or maybe 20% is on you. And you don't want to own your 10% or your 20% because that would mean admitting weakness, humility. That means it's saying you're sorry before they said they're sorry and they're more wrong than you. You know what this feels like, right? But you sense the Holy Spirit saying, I want you to go and die. Not literally, don't be a fool. Take the police with you if you need to. But to literally go and say, I'm gonna own my 10%, 100%. So that I can look at my savior and say, today I took up my cross and I followed you. For those of you who are parents, is there a child in your kid's life that God has called you to love on, to serve? Oh, and they bring so much baggage with them. They bring so many issues into your home. You're like, no, I don't want that, God. Please, I like my easy, comfortable life. Why make my life difficult? But perhaps that family will never know Jesus if you don't. Years ago, when I was a youth pastor at my last church, we would do these Wednesday night events, and they were so much fun. We would do this big, like, blowout, like, try to get as many middle school kids into the building as we could. And, like, one time, we covered our entire gym that we had just renovated for almost a million dollars, covered our entire gym with painter's plastic from the floor up to 10 feet high up the walls, the entire, like, gym. It wasn't a massive gym, but it was, like, like our rec center gym, like, the whole thing. And then we told all the parents, bring as many boxes of Jello as you possibly can, and we had a jello war that was like to end all jello wars that night. It was glorious. I think three kids went home with a concussion. It wasn't always my best moment, but it was a moment that was talked about after I left and went back to my church to visit five, eight, 10 years later. People still talked about that event. It was crazy. And we would do those kinds of things. And one night, a guy showed up. And I'll never forget his daughter. I think she was in like sixth grade, maybe seventh grade, little red-haired, cute as a button little girl. And he brought her into this fun event we had going on. And it was so much fun. And we had a blast. And at the end of the night, he picked her back up. He's like, man, this is fantastic. We've been looking for a church in the community. We just found you guys not too long ago. This is cool. How often do you do these? And I said, well, we try to do them every month. We accept Christmas and certain holidays. So we do about nine or so of these a year. 
And our hope with these events is that our students can bring their friends who don't know Jesus to the church, can have fun with us, see it. We're not all crazy, weirdo, whacked out, whatever. Like we actually are real people who have a lot of fun in this world. And that will win us the opportunity to take them over to our worship service where we can actually tell them about Jesus and the hope that we have. That's our hope at these events. And he got this really sad look on his face. And I said, um, I'm missing something. What's going on? And he said, well, we work really, really hard to make sure that our daughter doesn't have any of those kinds of friends. And I just said, sir, um, this may be the last time I ever see you then. But which part of the gospel allows us to always be comfortable? Which part of the gospel allows us never to go into the world where people don't know Jesus and it's risky and it's scary, but our kids have to trust God and learn to grow their faith under pressure. At some point, your daughter's gonna get a job or she's gonna go to college. At some point, she's gonna be outside of your influence. What if perhaps what God is calling you to do in 2022 is to embrace or invite someone else into your home to love them and serve them in the name of Jesus? Maybe for you, it's adopting or fostering. And I know what goes through your mind is, but do you know what that would do to our family dynamics? I do. And it can be beautiful and glorious. And it can be hard and difficult. Maybe God's calling you to come alongside a family already doing that. But here's my challenge to you. Please, please do not waste your life. It's far too short to live for yourself. And you might find if you do that, that you lose your very soul. So this is only a conviction message, a foundation message. What we're going to go over the next few weeks is based off this verse. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14 and 15, Paul says this, For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. Again, I don't want you to miss this. What Paul is saying is because Jesus died for everybody, therefore we will die daily. So one died for all, therefore all died. Therefore, when I die daily, what that means is I now live my life for something bigger and better. I live my life not for myself, but for him, Jesus, who died for me and was raised for me. So I have two challenges as I close up today. First challenge, I want to talk to those in the room who are believers of Jesus Christ. Whether you're a member at Kingsway or visiting somewhere else or maybe watching at home, you have a church locally. My challenge is this. Will you make your first New Year's resolution, your first commitment, that in 2022, you will be the church? Be the church. You won't attend church. You will not just watch church. You won't read books or talk about church. You will actually commit, however the Lord leads you, wherever he leads you, whenever he leads you, however he leads you, you'll be the church. And if it's hard and it's messy, you'll lean into him and lean into us even more. That's my first call for you. Now, secondly, if you're in this room and you have not given your life to Jesus Christ, or maybe it's been a long time and you've fallen away, my challenge to you, it's time to come home. Maybe it needs to begin with an initial decision to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And just like on the day of Pentecost, when Peter stood up and preached a really long time, and 3,000 people were baptized, 
Do you know why we baptize the way we do here at Kingsway? It's because when we go down into the waters and come back up, it's a watery grave. We're identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. When we go down in the waters, we're leaving the old us behind. We are physically dying, spiritually dying with Christ. I even joke when I baptize my own kids that I'm going to hold you under until your face turns blue, and then we'll come back up. We won't do that to you. But it's a moment of surrender to say, I know I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. I need God who is bigger and stronger or more powerful than me. So I'm giving myself wholly and completely to you. If that's you and you're ready now to be baptized, I just want you to raise your hand. We got a group of people. They're going to come to you. They're going to talk to you. And here's the thing. There's nothing to be afraid of. You don't have to have all the answers to all your questions. We can help you with that. But if you're feeling a tug on your heart right now, just raise your hand. Because if you can't do it here, how in the world are you going to do it out there? Now, what I want to do is pray over us that God would sweep in our hearts and in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, oh God, it is so easy to preach the sermon and so hard to practice. Father, I want to pray right now for the single parent who already struggles to find enough time and energy to navigate all the things going on in a kid's and a teenager's life today, the constant pandemic changing things, and now feeling the call to die to self. God, I pray that you would encourage them, build them up, but speak to them. God, if anywhere in their life that they are feeling selfish, being selfish, holding something back from you, wrestle it to the ground and take it away. God, I pray right now for the person who's listening, who has a habit. God, we're so afraid to call it a sin or an addiction, and it's owning them, and they know it. It's controlling them, and they don't want it anymore, but they don't know how to stop. God, may they choose right now by the power of your spirit to make today a new day, a day that they surrender fully, completely. And I know the fear and the anxiety and what if other people find out or what if I lose something, but what could it profit a person if they gain the entire world but lose their soul? Oh God, help us to let go of the things that keep us from you. And I pray right now, God, for the Christian family who is wrestling with how to step out in their faith and they want to take a bold step of faith, but they are afraid the money won't be there. They're afraid they'll lose a relationship. They're afraid of what they might get made fun of. They're afraid of what might happen if they do. Oh God, please give them the strength and the courage right now through the power of the Holy Spirit to trust you and to take bold steps of faith. God, show up and show off in such a profound way over these next few weeks that their faith is built up, that their character grows as a result. God, I pray for the person right now who wants to go into their workplace and see themselves as the pastor to serve their God, to see themselves as somebody who's working on your behalf in their workplace. But they're afraid, God. They're afraid they might get shunned or lose their job. They're afraid of what might happen if. Oh God, help them. Help them to find little places to sprinkle in your love and your care and your concern that they might be a salt and a light in this world. 
God, I pray for the person carrying baggage right now, burden of of pain, of brokenness. And they don't want to forgive. They don't want to release and they do not want to move forward. And yet everything in them wants to forgive and wants to release and wants to move forward. But they're so held back by bitterness. God, you help us to nail it to the cross and let you be our savior and our Messiah again. And God, whatever you lead us to this year, wherever you lead us to, whenever you lead us to, however you lead us to, God, may we be a people who say, yes, Lord, here am I. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and all God's people say.